I think the politics of this event is about freeing John Sinclair from prison, who's facing 10 fucking years for two joints of marijuana while we're all sitting here digging rock music. That's the politics of the situation. And I think we like ought to do something about John Sinclair and what the White Panthers are going through up there in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's what ought to come out of this fucking conference. All right, that's Abby Hoffman and Stagehand asking him if he's supposed to be up there or not, to which the answer is, of course, fucking no. Uh, and this is the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. It's uh, day four of an Aquarian exposition for us. Day three on just fucking day two for us. Yes. And here we are. It is on stage 2 a.m. in the morning. That's actually from later in the concert, and we'll get back to that as it happens. For us, it's time for Janis Joplin. Indeed. I'm James, by the way. That's Adam. Oh, yes. That's exactly true. And this is the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. As he mentioned, part four of our deep, deep dive into Woodstock. But it's been a lot of fun because a lot of stuff you're hearing on this podcast and a lot of stuff I'm hearing in some ways and, and Adam's just heard over the last couple of weeks uh, is for the first time. A lot of stuff has never been released. It's not in the film. It's not on, on records anywhere. There's a few concerts, as Adam mentioned last week that are starting to come out, that have come out the last couple of years of full sets. But this is amazing. And Janis Joplin's another one of those lost moments. She's not in the film. She's not on the soundtrack. She might be on the second soundtrack, Woodstock 2. She might. But she was another person that was unhappy with her performance here. And even though she was a huge star and people talk about her being at Woodstock, there was no evidence up until recently. It's funny because we Woodstock is such a famous, famous, famous thing for us at this point in history. But the truth is it wouldn't really have been as noticed at the time. What really made it, as made Monterey Pop in a lot of ways. The film. Well, more, more so than Monterey Pop because yes. Monterey Pop was a bit of a – it did make a lot of noise in the moment. But it's the film that really made it and the soundtrack that came out after that that really established Woodstock for a lot of people as the important event it was. So the bands that didn't allow their sets to be used – went a little unnoticed at the time. We ended with Credence last time, who people forget were even there, because even though they were the first band to sign, they didn't allow their set to be used, and so people forget they happened. You know, uh, By the time she played Woodstock, Janis Joplin was deep in the middle of a serious, serious heroin addiction that would eventually kill her. Um, on the day of the show, I know, at, at the base hotel for the artists, Country Joe like threw up his hands in disgust before he went to the festival, because she wanted him to stay there in the room and watch her shoot up, and he didn't want to see it. Um, and he had been her boyfriend. I don't think they were together still at this point, but you know they lived together for years, and he left her in disgust when she wanted him to watch her sh- shoot up. Uh, she was thinking, like a lot of people were thinking, this was going to be just another gig, a small festival. Uh, it wasn't until she got in the helicopter and flew over to get dropped off that she looked below her and realized oh fuck there is a lot of people and she apparently was almost manic the rest of the day a mixture of terrified and really 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 excited about it she's had a real panic attack from that Uh, and you know unfortunately as well there was a near 10 hour delay for her that she plays at 2am in the the morning she's supposed to have gone on around dinner time 6 o'clock I think I talked about someone else going on at 6 o'clock yesterday they were supposed to play even earlier Uh, but she's supposed to go on at 6 o'clock in the evening or maybe earlier, but she goes on at two in the morning, uh, and that's given her a lot of time to get drunk, to get high, to get sober, to get drunk, yeah. to get high. She's drinking whiskey and shooting heroin, uh, and God knows what else. <clears throat> I think so, by this time, if I may, Paul Rothschild, who was the producer of The Doors, 
uh, who produced Janice's last record, Pearl, was her lover at the very end. It was it was Rothschild who was with her and has said many times in interviews, he's since passed, that uh, he really tried to save her. Really, tried. Everybody that was with her and around her really tried to save her. Really. No but, one saw Morris. I mean, everybody knew Morrison was fucked up. Everybody knew Hendrix was, had his shit together. Hendrix, it was a... It was a weird thing that happened to Jimi Hendrix. It really was. It was, it was a true mistake. But Janice was on a suicide mission. You know, and even as early as before she's in Big Brother, a lot of her friends in the Bay Area, she's, she's moved out there. She's friends with a lot of guys. I know that Yorma Calconan, I think, from Jefferson Airplane and Jack Cassidy both told her to, like, get the fuck out of the Bay Area and go home. And at one point she does go home to Texas for a while. Uh, then hears terrible. about the audition with Big Brother and the Holding Company, comes back out and yeah. becomes a star. She's trying to clean up by going home. But by this time, she's deep into it. It's also uh, one of her first shows with uh, the Cosmic Blues Band. She's uh, got frustrated with Big Brother and Holding Company. I think they're probably frustrated with her, too, because they'd been a band. She joined them as a singer. They have a huge album with Cheap Thrills. But she becomes the star out of them, and they're sort of suddenly thought up as a backup band, which must have been frustrating. She wants to expand the brand. She wants to get horns and change what they can do. They're not interested in changing she that way. She wants to do more soul, less rock. And she in the Cosmic Blues Band, that record is very underrated. It's that, a lot of uh, session players, more yeah. guys who are professional musicians, yeah, and I a like lot of horns. Record. They can do more what she wants to do. You know, a lot of people question whether it's, you know, it didn't meet with a lot of uh, critical acclaim at the time of its release. It was looked down on at first, and right. the band was as well. The shows they played, but they had only been together a very short period before they played Woodstock. Uh, I think they're pretty good at this. I just think it's a matter of like, wow, it's a long night, and she's a little wiped out before she starts, and her voice gives out kind of in the middle, and one of the other guys sings for a bit, but she's singing pretty great to me still. Uh, There's some extraordinary stuff in the stuff we're going to play you, and I think the band shows off very powerfully in the stuff we're going to play, doing some songs that were originally... Big Brother arrangements that they do in a, in a completely expanded way, and you'll see that as well. And they well, also do weird covers here. Yeah, I mean, well, although the two are going to play at, at least as well. This is the first one I really love. People forget how many great songs the Bee Gees wrote before they became the huge disco hit they were in the later 70s. Right. But they were almost a Beatlesque band. Beatles meet the birds Kinks kind of. And the th- yeah, yeah well, singing-wise, but they were very English. A lot yeah, of yeah, songs very English. extremely English. Yeah. And uh, this is one of their great pieces of writing. It's my she favorite Bee Gees song. To Love Somebody. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song, and she does a great version of it early in the set. This is Janis Joplin and the Cosmic Blues Band playing To Love Somebody. Still August 16th, seemingly forever. Or 17th, it's 2 a.m. <laughs> oh, it is. It is August 17th in a way, but it's still day two. Right. Uh, They're just trying to get for the Yes, but we're not into day three yet, <laughs> even though it, it is day three. Here's Janis Joplin and the Cosmic Blues Band playing uh, To Love Somebody. There's a way 
Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Oh, first of all, I just love her so much. But how about, I mean, everybody should go and just pause this podcast and go and listen to the Bee Gees version of that song, which is beautifully done. I love that song. I think it's a, a great arrangement, wonderful melody. They sing the shit out of it. Uh, I love the lyrics to it. It's a beautiful love song done in a really late 60s English way. What she is doing there is tearing off the scab of pain and just letting the blood flow down her arm. I, that has got so much pain. She's turned that thing into a blues song. I mean, she's, she's scatting all over the place at the end of verses. I've been so goddamn blind. I mean, <laughs> it's just what she does, you know? And later on in this, in this set, we'll play Summertime, which is her version of that. And that's a – I'm going to make a bold statement because there are at least a half a dozen sublime versions of that song is my favorite. I have a bootleg of her doing it in I think in Austria and like not too long before. she. I think it was after Woodstock, which is fantastic with this band. And she does the same thing. She just makes it her own. And I, I tell you, that, that – you didn't promo that enough. You told me it was a really great version of that and you told everybody out in uh, podcast land. But I got to tell you, I was stunned by the first – Two verses of that song into the chorus, out into the second verse. I just, I was really just stunned. I was staring at the ceiling. I just couldn't. I was lost in the song. It was really beautifully done. I, I love her anyway, man. But that was really spectacular. That should have been in the film. It really should have been. I've not always been as big a fan of hers. I do get tired of the just the the cowtowing down on our knees to anyone with a voice like that. Um, and sometimes I feel like she. Uh, leans on the rasp sound too much and it's not what's actually great about her it's her ability to do all kinds of things and you really I, I do love that version I think it's a great interpretation of it um, her phraseology though the, way the next song is, is Summertime that I was going to play is Summertime I, I, you know she plays about actually it's the next song in the set too she plays about 10 songs in the set To Love Somebody was the third song and then she goes into Summertime and I actually think it's why well, I like it I I going to make a bold statement and say I disagree with you entirely about the best version of that song. I think oh, there's a lot of I know I'm making there. the bold yeah, statement. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. are so many yeah. great versions of that song. But I do love her version because it's the best thing it's the best illustration of her, which is why I like it. Because for one thing, it's a song that was originally an arrangement uh, from Big Brother and the Holding Company. They used to play this song live. I don't think it's on Cheap Thrills. It but, is. Oh, is it on Cheap Thrills? I believe it is. Um but uh, you know, you can see just by the intro, they've expanded it in some ways with what they can do with it with the horns. She's going for an almost a little Beatles-esque classical vibe at the top of it. This is, of course, a song by George Gershwin. Uh, it's from his opera, Porgy and Bess. It's a beautiful, beautiful song covered by Ella Fitzgerald, covered by many, many great singers. Miles Davis has a spectacular version of this as well because he does a whole album with Gil Evans, which is my favorite version of this song. The whole album with the Gil Evans and the Gil Evans Orchestra, it's the second of his albums with them, I believe, is this version, is uh, Borgie and Bess. Um, and that's one of my favorite albums ever made. Uh, but it's a good example of a song from Big Brother that grew through her, the new band, the Cosmic Blues Band, with yeah. what they could do. But also it's a, a good example of what I think makes her actually a great singer and it's missed by people. It, it, I get tired of her when she just leans on the rasp in her voice a lot. But she doesn't on this song, right? She doesn't because on this song she sings that way, but she also sings in the softer parts of her voice, especially in her falsetto, which is really beautiful. And there's moments where she like goes from the falsetto into the rasp and it's like she's taking a soft part of her voice and just applying a little sandpaper to it. To, and, and she moves in and out of those two different parts of her voice throughout this song, singing with a lot more delicacy than she does often in her career. Especially on days like this where she's kind of wiped out, she tended to lean on her 
the rasp and it actually after the the next song after this is uh cosmic blues and she wipes herself out has to take a song off and let uh one of the other guys sing i can't remember the sax player i think sings can't turn you loose that old you know r&b chestnut sure then she comes back for the last three songs for the encore but she kind of wipes herself out doing this um doing that rasp so much actually it's not on this song it's on the next one after this which is try just a little bit harder which was the the cosmic blues single and then the song cosmic blues uh, she, you know, she has to st- take a song off because she's tired out her voice, which is probably also a product of ten hours of drinking and talking and to everybody getting high and constantly, you and know, talking yeah. and drinking and, and getting waiting high and, and waiting, shooting, right. you know, heroin and smoking, God knows how many cigarettes and whatever. But uh, but this song, and, <clears throat> yeah, it's something quite special, and I, I, it's worth playing because I think it's really beautiful and really uh, it shows you the range of what she could do. I think. In retrospect, we tend to think of her doing just this one thing, and this shows a little bit more of it. So check this out. Plus, this- if, if I may, it's a, it's a great combination of sultry and sadness. There's a the, you know the, the song, the way it fits into Porgy and Bess is not a sad song. People have done it bluesy, but it kind of just talks about the laziness. It really is a a, a, a pan, a, an ode to uh, to summertime. And but the way she does it, there's something needy, but yet sexually potent about I don't know there's something about this that I, every time I hear it and I hear her do it it just gives me chills
you're gonna wanna go on a spread your wings, yeah. Shine your teeth to the sky. Cause I just wouldn't let it do it No, 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 no Hush Baby, 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 baby No, 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 you cry Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> it really is. Uh, it, good, good observation on the falsetto. She does very rarely go up to that higher register, unless she's screaming. Um, and she doesn't there. She doesn't burst out in the Janice-isms, which she will do in the next couple of songs, as you rightly pointed out, uh, so much so that she blows herself out. But um, what she was wont to do, even with Big Brother in her younger years, before the drug abuse and everything else, that she just didn't have... She didn't have a, a gear. She had sixth gear and neutral. She was either completely shot or balls out all the time. And uh, But that is a great example of her using that voice of hers in some other way than she's known iconically. Yeah, and like I said, it's probably been a hard night for her. Uh, hard but year. She, yeah. you know, she doesn't give up on it. She... Has some trouble. She sings the shit out of it early in the show. She has some trouble with her voice. She comes back. She's determined, even with the stage fright and the panic attack and everything, to really communicate with the audience. She talks to them. She sings to them. Uh, she comes back, plays a killer encore, and uh, of "Peace of My Heart" and "Ball and Chain," which is the song that made her so famous at uh, Monterey. Right. Uh, I want to play you some of "Peace of My Heart" and a little bit of her talking to the audience before that, because she really does try to reach out and communicate with them. So check this out. How are you all, how, I mean, uh, how are you out there? Are you, are you okay? You're not, uh, yeah, you're staying stoned and you got enough water and you got a place to sleep and everything. What does that mean? Because, you know, because we ought to, all of us, you know, I don't mean to be preachy, but we ought to remember, and that means promoters too, that music's for grooving, man, and music's not for putting yourself through bad changes. You know, I mean, you don't have to go take anybody's shit, man, just to like music. You know what I mean? You don't. So, uh, so if you're getting more shit than you deserve, you know what to do about it, man. You know, it's just music. Music's, music's supposed to be different than that.
Probably her biggest hit. Oh, would yeah. you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did want to make sure. We'll have a little postscript before we move on. Um, talking about the Grateful Dead last week, and now uh, kicking it off with Janis Joplin. The band will play later in this uh, festival. But there's a great film that we haven't mentioned in our discussion of the Gimme Shelters and the uh, Monterey Pops and the Woodstock films. Festival Express, excellent film of like a five day tour that the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, the band, Buddy Guy. Flying Burrito Brothers, Delaney, Bonnie, and Friends did this train that goes, I think, across Canada. 
and they play these, but they shoot inside the train of them jamming. They're all jamming together and singing songs, blues songs, country songs. It's a fantastic film. Check it out. And there's some great concert footage. Buddy Guy's amazing in it. And the, the reason why I bring any of this up besides the, the acts and because it happens a few months after Woodstock in 1970 is that the Festival Express was supposed to take that whole idea of Woodstock and bring it on the road. And as that film progresses, the tour digresses into this fight about this should be free. Woodstock was free. And they're like, well, wait. And, and even like Bob Weir's getting in fights with, with fans. Like, dude, we got to eat. This is, our, this is our job. You know, we have to work. We have to pay for this equipment. People, we pay people to move equipment. This is a gig for us. And it becomes this thing that becomes real in the film. And I think it's an excellent film about kind of like how these festivals – Worked after the in the shadow of Woodstock and some of the artists that shined in Woodstock and then went on in the, in the generation. It's a great. Did you ever see that movie? No, I know the movie though. I know what you're talking about. It's a I mean, fa- it's it, it, the film gets really deep into all all these guys these these musicians who are trying to be hip and cool in sixties and and you know and bohemian, but they're like we got to eat. <laughs> and I I found it. Fantastic. Well, I don't think I don't know why hip and cool has to be different from. Uh, Making a living. Yeah, it was. You know. Yeah, it was, though. It's strange. Yeah, it's like, you know, and, and that's when we, we kicked it off with Abby Hoffman. And, uh, you know, Abby's big thing with everything should be, you know, he wrote the you know, Steal This Book and everything should be for the people and, you know, this and that. And, or, you know, he politicized a lot of things. But anyway, we'll get to that a little later on. I just wanted to finish up by saying if you have a chance, check that film out too while you're digging on these podcasts and, and reliving some of these great bands in this period where, you know, it really is rare that so much talent comes into one place even something as big as Woodstock yeah very very true so the next band that hits the stage is now they finish up at 3 o'clock in the morning and at 3.30 and this is one of the greatest performances anyone's ever done live ever to me and this is one of my favorite bands ever and it's impossible to I think understand how important Sly and the Family Stone actually is now but Sign Family Stone is the first major band that's ever that was ever like sort of integrated both racially and sexually. It is a band with uh, three black men, two white men, and two two to five white black women. Uh, if depending whether you count little sister, their youngest sisters who are uh, their background singers. But you know, it's both musicians and singers who are men and women who are black and white. Uh, playing in a band together and making music that is unlike anything else. They're playing funk music. They've got the James Brown part of funk music down, but they've got the songwriting of Dylan down. They've got songs about racial inequality and protest and love and how it feels to be black and white in America while they've got the grooves of James Brown and the harmonies of like gospel music and the staple singers all happening at once. It's you know, it's an incredibly important band, and you could see what a big influence they were for someone like Prince, who also came about at a time in the uh, early eighties, early eighties, late seventies, when music had become kind of splintered again between black and white. Radio was playing mostly black music or white. No music. black artists on MTV, none at all, really. Uh, he, except for Michael Jackson, really, right? But he, he come- got on there with with nineteen ninety nine and Little Red Corvette first That's too. True. You got to give true. him credit. And he's he's making music again with an integrated band. Uh, it's clearly a, but also music that's got all the songwriting chops of the singer songwriters as well as the funk stuff, uh, you know. And he's 
incredibly important, and he clearly took a lot from Sly and the Family Stone, who are a wildly groundbreaking band. They're also just better than everybody else. They really are. Chops, that's the thing. Prince gets the performance aspect of it, the songwriting aspect of it, the politicizes, the, the spirituality, the the idea of the intergender, interracial band, uh, towing between rock, pop, funk, do not define me, we're Prince and the Revolution, very much like Sly and the Family Stone, Prince and the Revolution. He talks about Sly and the uh, uh, Sly Stone quite a bit in interviews in the early 80s. He has songs that are tributes to Sly. He mentions them in lyrics. The other thing that you mentioned, which is an excellent point, Sly and the Family Stone kind of gets lost now in the grand scheme. And we talk about that a lot on this podcast. You've got your Marvin Gaye's, you've got your Stevie Wonder's, and you've got James Brown, three of the most important black artists of the 1960s that go on to dominate or at least influence everything that goes on in the 70s and even in the 80s. And Sly and the Family Stone, to me, is right there. They have the hits, just like Credence. Oh, They've yeah. got the political st- – like, like some of their, their stuff is, is balls out, talking about the streets, talking about uh, interracial issue, issues, talking about economic issues, but yet fun-loving songs. And this, the, the production of those songs are just magnificent, Beatle-great. So you, you bring up a great point. It's a, it's, a, it's a very important band in the history of rock and roll. And next to Santana, the best set on stage, and arguably the best set. Well, I would say not next to Santana. I would say next to Sly and the Family Stone, Santana has the best set. There but go. to me, Sly and the Family Stone, clear head and shoulders above everybody else. It's not even close to me. It's, it is a magnificent set of music. They're out of this world good at 3.30 in the morning. Right. Playing between 3.30 and 4.30 in the morning. You know, uh, and, and he comes from that background. By 21 years old, he's a DJ in the Bay Area on KSOL, KSOL which is a soul station, but he's playing... Uh, the Beatles and the Stones on there too because he's clearly hearing all of this as just music and when he puts this band together which is a combination of his band and his brother Freddie's band um, they put it together and they make a band uh, Sly and the Family Stone out of it you know they've had about three or four albums out at this point the first one a whole new thing I think it's called then Sing a Simple Song uh, this is right in they've just released Stand Fanned. at this point which is their right. real Sgt. Pepper's That's for their this band yes. and when they come out to play, uh, we're going to play a few things by them, including one epic thing. Uh, but they open with My Lady, or Milady, and it has this insane funk doo-wop break in the middle where it breaks down to, like, Freddie Stone and Rose Stone and Larry Graham. I think Larry Graham is singing the bass parts as well as playing the bass. Of course, you remember him from later from Graham Central Station. Right. And he also played with Prince. They're doing this thing, like this, it's doo-wop, but they're doing it in a funk song. And it comes back – then they come back into the song and they come back later and it turns into a thing that almost sounds like beatboxing. It's the most aggressive doo-wop thing you've ever heard and clearly like a, a precursor of what later became beatboxing in the late, late 70s. Oh, and early yes. 80s. But check this out. This is – you know everybody's been playing their own kinds of music. Janice has been doing her bluesy thing and her sort of R&B review thing. Right. And then it's 3.30 in the morning and Sly and the Family Stone come on stage and they don't give a shit what time it is. <laughs> No complaints here. They just fuck you up right off the bat with Milady. Thank you. 
That's just fucking insane. <laughs> that, that, those breaks in the middle, that thing they do where they're doing the doo-wop like vocal thing, and then it turns, oop, it just gets in this funk. I can't even do it. It's a total beatbox funk thing that you that you expect to see fifteen years later. Yeah, you know, in in uh, in New York City, like hip hop thing. Yep, but it's already there with them, and it's really cool. Yeah, we talked a lot about the influences. That you'll hear in the 70s, but that's a classic example of somebody who was 20 years ahead of his time. And yeah, I mean, songwriting, instrumentally, the vocals, everybody's singing. They got like five part harmonies going on there. It's yep. crazy. Plus horns. Horns, yeah. You know, it's. And there's no, you know, they don't ease into it. They're blasting right out of there. Like Credence. They're not waiting around. Enough of this shit. Let's get to the meat of this thing. And uh, they do. And that is an excellent version of that song, too. It's flawless. You know, nobody is stumbling through shit there. And it's one of the better mixed versions. Did you get this from this box set, or is that the full? Because I've heard this I set before. I can't remember whether that's from. That one might be from the Sly and the Family Stone Woodstock experience. Yeah, because. That's not on the box set, I don't think. That's really, really well mixed. Uh, unlike other bands we've talked about, Sly and the Family Stone absolutely is a highlight of the, of the film. It's a highlight of the soundtrack. Uh, I Want to Take You Higher is just incendiary it really really is it's well, a it's a, a revelation that song one of the cool things about them too is that they're like they also look cooler than everybody else if you saw all the you know uh, uh 
Lenny Kravitz at one point in, in the middle of his career made a series of videos with the band. He has that woman drumming. I can't remember her name. They look so cool on stage and they are completely dressed up as Sly and the Family Stone. That woman's look is so dead on Cynthia Robinson's look. Right. The trumpet player for Sly and the Family Stone. She's playing drums in, in Kravitz's band. But his whole demeanor, the whole like fashion of him on stage in all those videos, yeah. uh, he makes a series of them. They're his biggest hits and he they are completely dressed as Sly and the Family Stone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Uh, Oh, I do want to play that because the, they play this set. They start with Milady. They go through Sing a Simple Song. You can make it in you, if you try. And then the middle of the set, they play this med- – it's like a medley, but they just run five songs. They run everyday people into Dance to the Music, into Higher, into Music Lover, into I Want to Take You Higher. They run these five songs, Crazy. one into another. Like I've heard on different records, it's listed – like on the Luchstock Experience, they're listed as five separate songs. On the Back to the Garden Woodstock set I just bought, it's listed as one song. Because it works like a five-song medley. It's fucking incredible. And it takes you through a lot of the music they were making right then as they made Stand Everyday People, which is a brilliant song about racism, the unnecessary nature of racism in America. Not just brilliant lyrically, but it's a fucking Beatles song. It's a, it's it's a, a funky Beatles hit. song. It's incredible the, the amount... When you think about like late Beatles and the... The amount of different kinds of music that they're squashing together into one song on Sgt. Pepper's, on on uh, the White Album, on Revolver. And when you hear, like, everyday people, it's like that. He's just taking all these different influences and kinds of music that are groundbreaking. And he's putting them all together in a song in a way that is so brilliant. And, um, and, and in a way that Stevie Wonder would dominate the early 70s doing. Yes, it's very, very true. So much of, of uh, Songs in the Key of Life is that way. You gotta hear this. It's one of the greatest musical moments ever. This five-song sequence. And you'll know all these songs. They're all hits. Uh, playing them, I, I can't think of anything to do but play them all at once. And I, you know I don't like to play these 20-minute things, but it is... It's what Woodstock's all about, man. It's That's... better than everything else because they're doing it. It's not just one 20-minute jam session of a song. They've just taken five songs and made them into one song. So it it never drags. It's just extraordinary. It's one peak after another. This is everyday people into dance to the music. Listen to the insanely intertwining instruments and vocals on dance to the music. Into the higher slash music lover medley into I Want to Take You Higher where the integration of the funk organ against the horn blasts the organ of course is Sly Stone playing he was a guitar player but when he put this band together with his brother he just said well you're already a guitar player I will teach myself to play keyboards Freddie Stone becomes the guitar player Sly Stone becomes the, the keyboards just check this out he it's- plays that great keyboard with the black keys are white and the oh, yeah. white keys are black, and that great Hammondy sound. And um, this, the end of this medley, unfortunately for the people, uh, obviously the film you can't play all of it. But I want to take you higher is in the film and is on the soundtrack. But and you could tell it's coming out of something else. It wasn't until twelve, fifteen years later when I heard this, what you're about to play, and it is everything you're saying. Incandescent searing. It is. It is. <laughs> It's what music should be, what a great band is when they're hot and at that moment. It is phosphorus on fire. (laughs) There's nothing like it. Sly and the Family Stone, August 16th, now 17th. It's now 4 in the morning.
What we'd like to do, what we would like to do is sing a song together. Now you see what usually happens is you get a group of people that might sing and for some reasons that are not unknown anymore, they won't do it. Most of us need approval. Most of us need to get approval from our neighbors before we can actually let it all hang down. And what is happening here is we're going to try to do a sing-along. Now, a lot of people don't like to do it because they feel that it might be old-fashioned. But you must dig that it is not a fashion in the first place. It is a feeling. And if it was good in the past, it's still good. We would like to sing a song called Higher, and if we could get everybody to join in, we'd appreciate it. Everybody's breathing and can on. Wanna take you higher, higher What I'd like you to do is say higher and throw the peace line up, it'll do you no harm. 
still, again, some people feel that they shouldn't because there are situations where you need approval to get in on something that could do you some good. Yeah. Wanna take you higher? Now, if you throw the peace sign up and say higher, you get everybody to do it. There's a whole lot of people here, and a whole lot of people might not want to do it because if they can somehow get around it, they feel that there are enough people to make up for it. And on and on, etc., etc. We're gonna try higher again if we get everybody to join it. We'd appreciate it. It'll do you no harm. Wanna dig it higher? Way up on the hill, let's try one time, y'all. Wanna dig it higher?
that's just outrageous. Fantastic! Like the 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 rhythm section of Larry Graham on bass and Greg Erico on drums. Greg Erico is like a, a, a like a, a machine gun on some of those roles. And it's funny because like here he's he's a white drummer, but like. Public Enemy used the drum track from like I think he's Dance to the Music or Sing a Simple Song in like four or five different times in different songs mm-hmm. of theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Ice, they said Ice Cube used it four different times. It, it it's incredibly influential music, and they're just playing the shit out of it at like four in the morning. Everybody's shining. It's a huge band. You got trumpet solos in there, keyboard solos, uh, incredible vocal performances, harmonies. Nobody is flat or pitchy. It's it's middle of the night. It's been a long time. We've been making a lot of excuses for a lot of different acts who've had it rough. No question about it. But these guys, that that could have been at the Apollo. That could have been at the Garden. That could have been at anywhere. You know, there's a section we cut out. They're having just as many technical difficulties. There's a section we cut out after the first song, after Milady. Uh, I just didn't see the point in playing it, but they're on stage talking about how, you know, I'm sorry, everything's going wrong up here. We can't hear anything. Nothing's playing right. We could just stop and wait till they get it right, or we could just play. I think we'll just play. You know, like, they're clearly going through it just as much as everyone else, but they're just blistering. Uh, An interesting thing about this performance is they come back after it. They play, you know, that's like the seventh and eighth song of the set, I think. They come back. They go off stage after that. They come back for an encore. They play Love City and they play Stand, which is the title song of their new album. It's been an incredibly incendiary set, but they come back and close with a not incendiary. They come back and close with a much more reserved and serious musical statement, uh, Stand. And they do it exquisitely and beautifully under control, which after a set like that, you can be excused for overplaying something, for playing it too fast, for doing all the things to keep the excitement up. Adrenaline is flowing and yeah. But they have a statement they want to make and they make it the way they want to make it. It's actually really beautiful. And I want to play it for you to end this set with them because it was clearly something that was very important to them. They've done their whole rave up and then they end their encore in a not rave up, which is, and it's pretty extraordinary how like beautiful and warm and well, check this out. This is the end of their set. This is about five minutes later. They end with love city and then stand. Stand in the end, you'll still be you. One that's done all the things you set out to do. Stand, there's a cross for you to bear. Things you go through if you're going in anywhere. Stand for the things you know all right. It's the truth. There's a 
measure of her standing tall And the giant bit beside him in the basketball And by the way, that song is not easy to play. I and mean, that's a very difficult arranged song. Which they have no problems with, though. I, I, no They're problems. They're so good that they don't worry about things. That, I mean, but, like, it's a really wild way to end that show on such a controlled way after a rave-up of a set. And it's beautiful and fantastic and very much them. Great message. Great Woodstock message. Generational message. Yeah. Uh, all those things. I, just, I did want to do the same... Uh, um, consideration to Sly and the Family Stone. I mentioned their chart success in comparison to Credence. They don't have the volume, but they have greater success. Their top charting songs from 67, Dance to the Music, number eight. But then, number one, Everyday People in 1968, number two, in 69, Hot Fun in in the Summertime, and Thank You for Let Me Be Myself Again, also number one. And then in 71, Family Affair, they had three number one singles. Uh, in that period from 1967 to 1971, and all their albums were either number one or number two. It's incredible. They they really were a superstar band, aside from being a very important, influential band, much like we mentioned before, Prince. Now, The Who didn't really want to play Woodstock. They were on tour of the rock opera Tommy, uh, which was predominantly a theater and concert hall tour. They thought it was better. Opera they houses, had, too. Yeah. They, had a, they had avoided all big outdoor venues, even though they were that big a band. So when the concept of coming to play Woodstock came up, they didn't want to do it. Um, they also thought it would be kind of disaster. So once they did agree, they demanded to get their $13,000 payday up front, which right. they did. Uh, when they finally got there, they were warned, you know, as again, they're playing, they're going to play at 5 in the morning uh, at sunrise. They're warned to uh, avoid drinking or eating anything to avoid getting dosed. Uh, and they really try very hard to do this. Uh, Roger Daltrey even brings a bottle of whiskey to quench his own thirst to stay away from any of the things that were being served backstage. Right, right. 
and it works pretty well. He's finally undone by a cup of spiked tea sometime in the middle of the night before they go on when he gets dosed and he's furious. And they're they're generally so disgusted uh, as they're they're getting ready to go on in a fury as they often were anyway. Right, and, and I will say this: and though, they play great that way. Dal- Dalton writes about it in his book that I reviewed last year, uh, his uh, latest his memoir, and he talks about like he he. He was the band's, no pun intended, teetotaler. So it seems ironic that he would drink tea and it was spiked. Uh, he didn't drink, uh, and it got him into huge fights, physical fights with the rest of the band because he felt that they were they were addicts. There's a there's a scene, there's a famous scene in the history of the Who where they throw him out of the band for like two weeks in like '66 or '67. He flushes all their expensive drugs down the toilet, and they <laughs> fucking come after him like maniacs. There's a brawl like on the floor, like they're ten year old kids. The other thing that needs to be said is that we've all seen Kids Are All Right, which, again, a brilliant movie. came out in 1979, sort of a retrospective on The Who up to that point. Keith Moon had just died. There's Funny, a- when I was a kid, we watched that movie. Me and my friend Joey, Mike, and Barry, we watched that movie over and over. Every time we got stoned, every time we got high, every time we got drunk and we came home, we were just sitting around. Let's just put it on again. Yes. We put on the tape of The Kids Are All Right over. I must have seen it 50 times. Me too. You know, beginning with that Smothered Brothers performance of My Generation where they smash the, yeah, uh, the drums Moon up. Yeah, and Keith Moon puts a, like a way more explosives in there he should have. Yeah. And, and Pete Townsend to this day says that, that that was the beginning of his tinnitus. Anyway, so um, – and his hair is on fire in that scene. He's like patting. Well, you got to watch that. It's a great movie. Anyway, there's an interview in that scene – in that film before they play uh, some of the Woodstock footage. And the interviewer asked Pete Townsend – this is like 72, 73. So he's had a few years to digest it. He said, you know, what about Woodstock? It was the great moment of the generation. How did it change you? How did it inform you? And he goes – well, I'll tell you one thing. This is Townsend speaking. I fucking hated it. He goes, I, it scared me. It infuriated me. I didn't like the setup. I didn't like the idea of it. I was frightened from the second I agreed to it. <laughs> so everything you're saying has come to fruition. The Who takes a stage at dawn. And later on, and it's beautifully depicted in the film, later on, Dolce does say there was something really spiritual and magical Without get, and he wasn't one of those guys. He wasn't one of those guys that got into the whole granola head frou frou stuff of the of the sixties. Dolce was a professional from the very beginning, balls out, kid from Shepherd's Bush. But he said he was so moved by the sun coming up over the hill while he sang, um, listening to you, and uh, see me feel me into listening to you. And he said it was just it was perfect. So after all that bullshit, it actually works out for them, and it becomes a really dramatic part of the film. Well. They're furious before it starts, though, and their roadies are on stage setting up, and and that's when this happens. (laughs) That's right. I think the politics of this event is about freeing John Sinclair from prison, who's facing ten fucking years for two joints of marijuana while we're all sitting here digging rock music. That's the politics of the situation, and I think we like ought to do something about John Sinclair... And what the White Panthers are going through up there in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's what ought to come out of this fucking conference. They're up there on stage setting up for The Who when Abby Hoffman, who's actually been a great help throughout Woodstock organizing, he's one of the Chicago Seven, but he's there at Woodstock helping to organize uh, the, the supplies, going to the medical tents. He's actually been a huge help. But at this moment, he runs up on stage and grabs a mic and starts going into this rant about John Sinclair, uh, who's also like a great guitar player and does a lot of playing. I've seen him many times at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. He's yes. a brilliant rock critic. 
Manage the MC5. Manage the MC5. But he's in jail at this point, and Abby Hoffman goes on to this whole thing until a stagehand comes up and says, hey, are you supposed to be up there rapping? And I don't think so. Get off. And uh, finally, the Who come on. Uh, We bring this up again because it's going to come up later. Yes. Uh, Their roadie called this show a shambles. Roger Daltrey called it the worst gig we ever played. And Pete Townsend said, I thought the whole of America had gone mad. But at some point, they get on stage at 5 a.m., open with heaven and hell, and then play this 23-song set over the course of an hour and five minutes, which includes most of Tommy, although they've edited songs out and put them in a slightly different order like they were doing to play them live. And they do this.
So that's the opening suite <laughs> of uh, of Tommy. After with can't explain it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it's a so it's can't explain there. Uh, it's a boy, 1921, Amazing Journey in Sparks, the sort of opening suite of Tommy. Uh, they follow it with I Say to the Blind and Christmas and Acid Queen, and then they get into Pinball Wizard. And after that, this happened. I think this is a pile of shit. While John Sinclair rots in prison. After Pinball Wizards, when they have a little bit of a problem, (laughs) because Abby Hoffman comes back up on stage again and starts to say something, and Pete Townsend's like, fuck off, get off my fucking stage, and he comes up, and he takes him, he takes the stock, the headstock of his guitar, he just swings it right to the head of Abby Hoffman, who's flying into the audience. Completely out, completely knocks him out. Uh, with his Gibson SG, uh, Townsend, no, uh, you know, stranger to smashing things on stage, had said also in Kids Are All Right when he asked him about knocking Abby Hoffman out, he said one time we were playing at the Fillmore East. I think it was the Fillmore East, not the Fillmore West. And he said the building next door was on fire, and they begged the Who to get off the stage, and Pete wouldn't do it. <laughs> he goes, the fucking building was burning down, and I still wouldn't stop. Once I'm on it, once I get into my frenzy, it's over. So Townsend even admitted he didn't even know it was Abby Hoffman. He just said, someone's on my fucking stage, and he's, uh, he's, he's on J- Roger's microphone. He's got to go. He basically threatened to kill the next person who came on stage. In knocking Abby Hoffman off the stage, he threw his guitar, and they launched into a furious version of Do You Think It's All Right? But, of course, the guitar is completely out of tune by this time, <laughs> so they play it for about a minute, and then he has to stop and retune the guitar and go on with the rest of Tommy. Fiddle about. There's a doctor I've found. Finally, uh, finishing up uh, the set with the end of uh, Tommy, We're Not Gonna Take It, which is spectacular. And that's what you were talking about earlier. The sun comes up as they're playing it. And uh, right as they start, they start to sing the See Me, Feel Me section of uh, We're Not Gonna right. Take It, causing John and Wilson to later say that uh, God was our lighting man that day. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this is, this is the end of that set, We're Not Gonna Take It, which is pretty spectacular by The Who.
See me.
magnificent who in their prime. Uh, Incredible. Really. Uh, still one of my all-time favorite records. Tommy's always gotten on top of me. I was fascinated by the film when I was a kid and then later on learned about the, the album, although I remember my friend Stephen Ryan in the Bronx. We, we couldn't have been more than six or seven. Well, they got, the record came out in, in the summer of 69, so I was six, going to be seven. And I remember his sister, who was probably 14 or 15 at the time, playing it up in the attic and being fascinated by the recurring theme music in it where he uses four or five different themes and keeps bringing them back. And uh, that, that album's always stuck with me. When I hear that performance, which is like really iconic, we've talked a lot about a lot of things that have gone under the radar here, but also things that have made bands and how great Santana was and certainly how great Sly and the Family Stone was. But the Who's performance here, despite the fact that they freaking hated it and uh, it wasn't their cup of tea and they demanded all this money up front and all the stuff that came uh, with it, it's still really a, a great performance in the history of a great band in their prime playing their most – even though Who's Next is considered, and I like Quadrophenia actually better, Tommy is the thing that made them the Who. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It, it gave them the, the, the broad sort of like – the reach of like the idea that they were reaching for something bigger than just some singles. You know, and they started doing that early with the Who Sell Out. And it doesn't have one. the impact that yeah. Tommy does. Um, no. It's brilliant. Perfect for its time. Uh, the, the concept of Mayor Baba in there, the stuff that Townsend was into, the spirituality, the concept of LSD, killing the ego, uh, this Christ figure coming back to – you know, all the things that are in Tommy. Just so well done. Perfect for its time. Here they are playing at dawn. Finally, fine, not quite, but finally towards the end of what was supposed to be the electric day two. We're not quite there yet. And also, I think that, that they, they opened up people's minds to the idea of what, maybe not in a good way after them, but to the idea of what you can do on a rock album. And to be able to come out and play it live, too. Because certainly, uh, the Beatles really pushed the, the, you know, the envelope on Sgt. Pepper's, but you never got to see them play it live. They had stopped playing long before that. Right. You know, so the, you know, the Who doing something outrageous like a rock opera with Tommy and then going out on the road and playing it. Right. City after city, night after night, turning it into not just this concept album, but something that could be performed live that eventually made people want to make a movie of it and then a Broadway play of it because it was so it, it was so visual in your mind, taking music and rock music to different places, but at the same time, not turning into a sort of blah, like limp prog rock band while doing it. Right. They didn't do this in some sort of studious sort of university way. They went out, they're a punk band. And right. they play like a punk band. They play this opera like a punk band. And even when we were touring with them, you know, what is it? 30 years after that, plus, they're a punk band. You know, and they were, I watched them every night we toured with them. And we did three different tours with The Who. I saw them every show, and they were a punk band throughout. It was incredible the fury they were putting into that, even when the only people left were Townsend and, and Daltrey. They were, they were a furious band. Because it's in the songs. Because Townsend put those in those songs. Yes. And he's often said, you know, I always felt bad for Roger, jokingly. He was, it was him and three geniuses. Because Townsend never knew what those songs were going to be once Entwistle and, and Moon got a hold of them. Two guys that were completely unique in their style of playing. And nobody ever, before or after, has ever played the drums like Keith Moon or even wanted to. I've heard drummers say, that's not drumming. And um, Entwistle, who played that instrument like a lead. 
like an lead instrument. We were talking about it earlier. Well, he's one of playing the lead. He is the lead in most Who songs. The melody line is being played on. It's, the, it's an incredibly strong rhythm part by Pete Townsend. Not that he never plays lead, he does, of course. And the melody line, the lead guitar is played on the bass throughout right. a lot of Who songs. You know, and and Tommy was the quintessential. And you're right; they never lost their edge by doing it and by taking it immediately on the road and making people understand it and love it and not just be this thing like Sgt. Pepper's, oh, look how brilliant we are. And look, listen, I love Sgt. Pepper's, but you make a great point. They could never and never did play that live, the Who did. Yeah, and they went right on the road. And then they went to a place like Woodstock where everyone's like <laughs> getting high and jamming out in, for better or for worse, and it is both. Right. And they play Tommy. They played it at uh, between 5 and 6 in the morning. And, you know... The Jefferson Airplane, massive hit singles before this, and they are the biggest band. They're a headliner, and they're going to be the headliners this day. But who the fuck wants to follow the Who ever in the history of mankind? No, nobody in their right mind wants to follow the Who. You know, like even Hendrix and Monterey. That's why he lit his guitar on fire. Him yeah. and Townsend had a fight in the back, and they, Townsend's like, I'm not going to follow you. And he's like, I'm the, and the, the Who absolutely, and that's also in Kids Right, and in the film, eviscerate the stage. I mean, it's completely on yeah. fire. And then Hendrix comes out and literally lights his guitar on fire. And, you know, on this night, you got Sly and the Family Stone and then the Who to 605, the Jefferson Airplane. I, I got to think that in their minds, it was like, on the one hand, yay, we're the headliners. And then on the second hand, fuck, who do we have to follow? Because they don't go on for another two hours. Right. I mean, they wanted to play the Sunrise slot, but it ends up being the Who play from 5 to 6.05. By the time Jefferson Airplane goes on, it's 8 o'clock. I don't know what happened in those two hours. But, but give it up to Grace Slick because she opens a set with a fantastic line. Sort of. But I don't – I mean, to me, it's like – I, I love the Jefferson Airplane in some ways, but they always seem like the kids trying to be as cool as the other cool kids. <laughs> we do just as much drugs as those guys. We're very political and uh, – I think one of the funniest things about the show, they have Nicky Hopkins playing with them on the show because yes. he played keyboards all over Volunteers, and that's the record that's coming out right then. Uh, Yorma Calcone said, I thought this was really funny. My wife was there, but then I also had this girlfriend who had also shown up, so I was really concerned with keeping the two of them as far apart as possible. My ex-wife used to claim that one of the reasons I played so long was that I was afraid to face her when I came off stage, and honestly, there could have been some truth to this. <laughs> and let me just say, I told Adam when we first decided to do this and we were discussing it back and forth, I listened to the entire Jefferson Airplane set for the first time about two weeks ago. And I have to say, and I think I wrote it on a text to you, it, it's incendiary. And I wrote it, and I, and I discussed this with Immer too, who, by the way, said to me, David Immer, look, the first album he ever bought, Woodstock soundtrack. He said to me, um, he also, I told him, you have to listen to the whole thing. He had heard bits and pieces of it. But it's just, this whole set, and we don't have time to play all of it. I, it was a revelation to me, because I had never saw them live. I, I hadn't even really heard many live tapes. They are blasting. And this is 6 o'clock in the morning. And she starts out by saying, okay, you've seen all the stuff. This is morning maniac music. And the first thing they play, they go balls out. And they do it for another, how long do they play? About an hour and An hour and, and 40. They play a long time. Wow. Yeah. Much longer. Well, I mean, their saving grace is Jack Cassidy on bass, Spencer Dryden on drums, and Yorma Calcone on lead guitar are incredible. And at any moment when they're not singing, this band is off the hook good to me. I think right. they're incredible. They have a lot of cool stuff in this set. Uh, especially instrumentally we can't play some of those songs like the Ballad of You and Me and Puniel okay song from After Bathing and Baxter's but the instrumental sections of it it's a 20 plus minute song are incredible here same thing on Wooden Ships yeah and I, you, you make a great point I wanted to th throw that in I, I mentioned to Adam I loved their version of Wooden Ships the Crosby, Stills and Nash song however 
it's not until they go into the instrumental where it really takes on yeah, a completely yeah. different form. I love their singles, and I love um, Surrealistic Pillow, but I have to say, I never knew them as a live band, and I, my eyes were open to this. All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups. Now you will see Morning Maniac music. Believe me, yeah. It's a new dawn. Yeah, the regular guys. And Nikki Hopkins.
So yeah, that that is just killer to me. You know, when I first again when I first heard that her little bit, which I thought was self deprecating because you know again as you said it's hard to follow Sly and the Family Stone and the Who after those sets, but in the film and on the soundtrack she says Morning Maniac music and then they go into the song we're about to play to close out this podcast and blessedly no, that's, that's an edit. It's an edit, right? It, it, so, actually, it actually happens at the beginning of the set, right before the other side of the right, slide where we so, just played it. Yeah. Right. So when I first heard that, I have been listening for the past 30 years to, to volunteers following that line. Then I got that, and that's why my ass was kicked. Because a couple of things. They open up their set at Altamont, which we've mentioned a couple of times in these series of podcasts. That was the song they were playing when the Hells Angels beat Marley, Marty Ballon unconscious with pool cues right in front of the stage. Ballon had been watching from backstage for about a half hour them beating on like these people, and he couldn't take it anymore. And halfway through the first song, he just dives down, and it's in the film, and you just see pool cues come down on him. He's wearing a cowboy hat and a denim jacket, and he just disappears. And then the, the, the Hells Angels end up having a fight with, uh, with them about it. And, and, and Grace Slick is actually taken aback because she's like, I know all these guys. These guys, you know, are security for our sets. And the Grateful Dead, they, they, were, they were just as shocked as anybody else. But putting all that together, when I first heard what we just heard, I, it was a completely new experience for me. And I got to tell you, I, I was really blown away by that version of that song. The version of Volunteers they play near the end of the set. It's not the end of the set, but it's really good. It's a great version of that song. and It's probably my favorite Jefferson Airplane song anyways, Volunteers. Mm. Wow. I think it's a great song a about great song. the protest movement and where people were. And I just think it's the best distillation of what they were trying to do. Sometimes some of it seems like, like I said, I feel like they're trying to do things other people are doing. But in Volunteers, it's a perfect distillation of this band. I think it was the high point of their career, that song. I think it's magnificent. And I think this version of it, Marty Balin just sings the shit out of it. Yeah. He digs in. So he's a very beautiful, beautiful ballad singer. But on this one, he completely rocks out. He does. He's one of the great ballad singers. And, uh, but he completely rocks out. And I think it's fantastic. And we probably should end with that because yep. this set's a little longer. We should have done Janice in, in the other podcast and uh, made this one a little shorter. But we didn't. But we finally got through the second day of Woodstock. We sure did, and it was it was a great day. There it took was a us lot nearly as long as it took them. Is, uh, <laughs> and uh, just like uh, just like Sly and the Family Stone ended up uh, with a statement, so did Jefferson Airplane. So everybody's really uh, capturing the zeitgeist, capturing the moment, and, and and using their music to to speak to the masses. And I think it's a, it's a quintessential Woodstock moment. Really, it's a, a day at the festival which began at one p.m. and ended at. 10 a.m. The next so day. So 21 hours, <laughs> although there were breaks in the middle and things that didn't, that went, a lot of sitting around, but a hell of a long day uh, of music. And it ends a little bit after this song, but we're going to end it with this song ourselves. Uh, this has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. This is going to be Volunteers. We're the Volunteers of America. Got a revolution. Got to revolution. I'm James. That's Adam. Peace. Late. Peace. <laughs>